All right, Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's where we are today. And it's going to sound a little bit like he read from Deuteronomy chapter 4. There's a lot of parallels there. Uh, We're in verses 1 through 9. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules. That the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, And with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, help us to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, even as we hear your word preached this morning. Give us a greater love for your word. We ask that you would impress it upon our hearts Uh, that you would fill our mouths with it, help us to know it, to speak of it to others, so that they might know this great hope and power found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Sometimes you don't know what your father thinks of your mother until she's gone. And so it was interesting to me to uh, listen to my dad at my mom's memorial back in uh, June. And one of the things that uh, stuck out to me, and I I can't remember if I'd heard it before, but he had mentioned that whenever they had visited with uh, friends of theirs, uh, the common comment was that we were well-behaved. Strikes me as unusual. (laughs) I think. I wonder how bad other children were. Um, and my father did not claim any responsibility for this, uh, but uh, recognized that my mother was the disciplinarian of the family. Uh, he had the nickname the Marshmallow, apparently uh, behind closed doors. Uh, that's what she called him. Um, I didn't discover this until I was probably in my 20s or 30s. Um, and so my parents cared about, you know, how I behaved, and every parent is concerned about how their children behave. 
That's an ordinary sort of thing. But what I didn't learn as a child is I didn't learn who Jesus was. I mean, my mother brought me to Catholic Mass, and I had to go to CCD and these things. But as a family, we never talked about who Jesus is, what we're to believe concerning Jesus, and what Jesus requires of us. And so that kind of delves us into this uh, idea of family discipleship, an answer to that question of uh, where are we to make disciples, which is our fifth and final commitment as we think about the Vine Project. Does the Bible talk about discipleship in the home? In other words, is that an essential part of what it means to follow Jesus and helping others follow Jesus? How does the home play into that? And we're going to start by looking at this question in verses 1 through 3. But we need to remember the context into which Moses gives this instruction. Moses has repeatedly been telling them in the first five chapters about how they were recipients of grace. That they had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Rescued from oppression. That they had heard the voice of God coming from the fire on the mountain and yet were not destroyed. How he and his love had given them ten commandments and then had set up a pattern of worship for them. Now, God had sustained them throughout their time in the wilderness, providing water where there was none, providing food where there was none, that they had experienced profound and consistent grace from this God. And now Moses is reminding them that they are to live as befits citizens of God's kingdom as they enter the land that God had promised and had was finally bringing them to. Not because of a weakness on God's part, but because of the wickedness of the prior generation that refused to believe the good promise of their God. Moses starts off with this idea that they were to do them, they were to do those commands, those rules, those statutes, they were to do them in the land in which you are going over in order to possess. And this speaks of even more grace that they're about to experience. We didn't read it, but as you, if you look at 10 and following, we recognize, one, God has been, has been keeping this promise that he made to Abraham, this covenant promise. But more than that, they're going to occupy homes they did not build. They're going to enjoy the benefit of cisterns they did not dig. They're going to enjoy the benefit of fields they did not clear and did not plant, at least initially. And so uh, they're not going into this barren land that they need to build up, but it is all given to them for their enjoyment. Obedience. That's what, that's what Moses is calling them to. The obedience is, is essentially covenant faithfulness, walking within the, the boundaries that are established by God's covenant with his people, uh, first with Abraham and now also with Moses. 
obedience, walking in this way so that you can continue to enjoy communion with God in the land that he provided. That's what he is getting at for them. That's why he's giving this instruction. So that you may fear the Lord your God, you, your son, and your son's son. That's similar to what we just heard from Deuteronomy 4. Okay, For instance, in verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that uh, your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children. Okay. Later on as well, in verse 10, uh, we see, um, Gather the people to me that I, uh, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children So, this was, just as the covenant with Abraham was, a multi-generational covenant. God did not just make the covenant with Abraham, but with Abraham and his seed. And so here we have that seed, okay, the descendants of Abraham, and God is reminding them uh, through Moses that this covenant that they've received on Mount Sinai is not just for them, but it's for their children, and their children's children, and their children's children's children, and so forth and so on. We need to recognize, I believe, on the basis of this covenant, that God works through families, not simply through individuals. But his grace is, in part, a multi-generational grace. And this aspect means that we are intend to pass information down about who God is through family discipleship. Now, some of you might say, well, Steve, that's the Mosaic Covenant. That's not the New Covenant. And you're correct on that part. We do live under the New Covenant. We do no longer live under the Mosaic Covenant. But I would suggest that you might be mistaken when it comes to this multi-generational character of the New Covenant, precisely because not just Uh, Acts 2.38, but for instance, Isaiah 59. When Isaiah speaks about this covenant that is to come, he says this, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit is upon you. So this sounds a lot like what we see in Ezekiel. Okay, And my words I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And so when God speaks of this covenant to come, that we call uh, the new covenant, the covenant in Christ, he speaks with the same covenant language of your seed and your seed seed, the multi-generational realities that are present from the beginning. As Charles Hodge has said, uh, God has put children in his covenant, and he has no place taken them out. So, now, let's back off for a second. 
that the, that covenant reality does not guarantee that your child will be saved. We don't we don't mean that when we speak of this. Doesn't mean that every single one of our children will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It also doesn't mean that you have the power to make it happen. And so when we think about um, family discipleship, we're speaking about responsibilities. We're not speaking about a guarantee of results on, by your actions. Okay, It's important for us to set this out. And so I don't want you to feel a false sort of guilt if, if you have tried as best as you possibly can and you've seen a child wander from the faith. That's not on you. Uh, that is on your child. Let's keep in mind. So, this fear, this awe, this reverence, as we see in Proverbs and in the Psalms, is the beginning of wisdom and is necessary for the production of obedience and fruit. Usually where there's a disobedience problem, there is first a lack of fear problem or a fear of the wrong things kind of problem. And so, loving your children means that you want to love them well. Not just that they behave, not just that they're happy, not just that they're going to be financially secure in the future, uh, none of which you can guarantee either, by the way. Not that they're well-adjusted, but they live wisely and to the glory of God. And there's an example that's very interesting to me of this, and that example is Timothy. Think about Timothy for a moment. We're familiar with Timothy because, well, there's two epistles that are written to Timothy, and uh, he was one of he was part of Paul's church planting team, and uh, he had matured to the point where now he was he had been left behind, not just to run errands, but in those pastoral epistles that go by his name, he is installing elders in particular churches. But note how it all begins. From first, uh, sorry, Second Timothy chapter one, verse five. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And so we, we see, mother, daughter grandson, having this sincere faith, which later on Paul is going to say comes from the scriptures, which make us wise for salvation. And so um, I know the kids in the, the uh, confirmation class were dealing with some of that stuff this week uh, as I worked with Ash on this. Um, but later in 2 Timothy 3, we see this as well. As for you, this is one of the passages they looked at. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly received, knowing from whom you learned it. Okay? He's referring to Eunice and Lois, not necessarily simply Paul. Okay, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. 
And so we want our children to be engaged with the scriptures, not simply so they behave, but so they become made wise for salvation through faith in Christ, not through being good, not through obeying the rules, not by giving money away, but through faith in Christ who has died for the sin of sinners. So we see that a multi-generational covenant requires discipleship, not simply in the corporate worship, but also in the home. So what does it mean to disciple our kids at home? And now some of you might be thinking, uh, I don't have kids at home. That's okay. Some of these things that I'm going to talk about still apply, even though your kids have left the house. Uh, And some of you... You don't have to worry about it uh, in terms of children, but there's also application to spouses uh, and and discipling in the home in that sense, uh, or just, again, discipleship of anyone that you know that you are discipling. So even though I'm talking about families, it's not limited to families, that which I'm about to say. It's into this that Moses now speaks what is known as the Shema, the confession of faith of the Israelites, as well as the greatest commandments according to Jesus in Matthew 22. Let's start with the Shema, that confession of faith. Behold, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Now, there's, there is one God, okay, numerically. Uh, there's one God, and that God exists in three persons. We get into the mystery of the Trinity. But really what Moses is getting at here is the reality that God is simple, that God is undivided, that God is not conflicted. In other words, he is not, Yahweh is not like all the gods of the Canaanites, nor like the gods of the Egyptians that they have supposedly left behind when they left Egypt. In the ancient Near East, gods were many. Not just that each group of people had their own god, but they also had many gods. There was a god for storms and fertility. There's a god for war. Uh, there, There are all kinds of gods. I mean, Egypt was just filled with all kinds of gods. And those gods were not at peace with one another often. They were usually at odds with one another, and if you have any familiarity with the Greek myths, that's what you see. All sorts of good movies are made (laughs) about the conflict between the Greek gods. What we find, or what we're supposed to understand, is that Yahweh has no rivals. There's no pantheon within Israel. There's one God. And there's no conflict within that God. He's perfect. He's united. He's undivided. Now, in terms of those, that idea of rivals, Ken joked with me about Tom Brady before the worship service. And, you know, that, that, there's an argument right there. Who's the goat? Who's the greatest of all time? Is it Tom Brady? Is it Peyton Manning? Is it slinging Sammy Baugh? People can have all kinds of varied opinions, and guess what? It's just an opinion. 
when we get to the reality of Yahweh being one, there is no simple opinion. He is the unrivaled God. There's no debate on this question, though people may challenge it. They have nothing, no footing to stand upon when they do so. As I mentioned, God is one in essence, three in person. All three exist eternally. All three are united in purpose. And so, what does this say about discipleship? Why is this here? Well, I believe it means that discipleship communicates who God is to our children. That you really can't ultimately talk about discipleship unless you're talking about who God is. Because otherwise, it's just morality. Otherwise, it's just be good. Be nice. Be fair. We have to integrate it with our understanding of who God is. All of those ideas of fairness and goodness and righteousness or find their, their definition in who God is. And so if you remove God from that equation, then you get into relativism. Well, that's my truth. You've got your truth. And I've got my morality and you've got your morality. For Christians, that is not so. It is not about what I think is right, but it becomes what God says is right. So, discipleship communicates his character as it is found in Scripture. Discipleship also reminds our kids of God's amazing grace that are revealed usually in our struggles. And uh, we speak of the, we ought to speak of these things frequently. For instance, later on in this chapter, uh, verse 20, for instance, when your son asks you in a time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? What Moses says is tell them about the Exodus. Tell them about the wilderness. Tell them about God's faithfulness to his promises in those instances. And again in verse 24, And the Lord commanded you to do all these statutes to fear the Lord your God for our good always and that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. God has been faithful. And one of the realities of his faithfulness is that they still existed. And so we are to testify Not just give them the scripture, but also testify to God's work in our lives. Testify to how he brings us to faith. And for some of us, that's a very simple story. It's you were born, and your parents believed, and they told you about Jesus, and you don't remember a time when you didn't know Jesus, and that's all good. But some of you have more dramatic stories of rebellion and other things, and yet God worked amazingly in your life to bring it to him. Don't hide, in other words, don't hide your sin from your children, lest they think that their sin disqualifies them from saving faith. Let them know that that you learned through failure, that you learned through defeat, that, that they don't have to make the same mistakes you made. And that 
when you're calling them to walk in faithfulness, it's so you don't, because you don't want them to make those same mistakes, because you know the devastation it brought upon you. And so don't, don't, you know, gussy up your past. As I prayed earlier, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away this week, and now you're going to hear uh, and have been hearing all the great things that she did, and you're not going to hear anything about the bad things she did, and that's appropriate. Uh, when someone dies, you don't need to start bringing up all the bad things. But I don't want you to do that to your past with your children, as though you never goofed. It's a, it's a mercy to them. So they know that you failed, but God was not done with you, for instance. We see this again in Psalm 102. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. Okay, Record it now for the generation to come, so that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. So we see this idea again of, of remembering his goodness to us in our circumstances, and communicating that to the generations to come. So they know that the same God who did all of these things in here is still at work amongst his people in the present. It's not just an old ancient faith, but it is a living God who works. Well, that relationship that we, we speak about in terms of the Shema has results to it. And so we have the commandment that flows out of that relationship and is connected to the fact of an undivided God. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. The undivided God calls us to live with him in an undivided life. Not a divided life. Not a life of divided loyalties. God's always first. Not second. And not 1A to a 1B. Or a 1B to a 1A. In other words, there's a recognition that our loyalties can be divided. Some people uh, espouse that phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Sorry, folks, that's idolatry. It is. And so, if you're worried more about what your spouse thinks than about what God says, you have an idolatry problem. If you're more concerned about how your children are going to react, and, uh, you know, then you have an idolatry problem. You've made your kids more important than God at times. We're all tempted to do this. Don't make it sound like uh, you're the only one. Or our jobs, the pursuit of money and wealth, all of these kinds of things, all of these little gods that we still worship in place of Baal and Asheroth and Moloch and everything else. God's calling us out of that so that we have an undivided heart toward him. And that's where that whole idea that man could not serve God and mammon, right? You only have one master. That's the concept. Jesus is, a, is applying this passage to that particular audience because they loved 
money. So this is essentially a love that has integrity. The whole person engaged the whole time for the whole of life as well. This passage speaks to our responsibility as being in covenant with God, but it doesn't necessarily speak to our ability as sinners. Get to that in a second. Now, let's do it now. I'll switch things. The law is about love. But the law also reveals our struggles to love. It reveals that we don't love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And so the law, even with, with good intentions, so to speak, reveals our incredible need for Jesus. And part of the function of the law is that it prefigures what Jesus, Jesus is going to do for us and the bearing of our sin. And so as you disciple within the family and as you deal with failure in your children, as you deal with sin, you've got to remember to bring them back to Jesus. And I wish I did that every time. I wish I could tell you that, oh, every time I brought my kids to the throne of grace and the foot of the cross, and I haven't. I have not always fulfilled my responsibility to my children and to my God. So we're not talking about perfection here. Again, we're talking about moving in the right direction in an increasing fashion. Don't get caught up on the fact that you may have failed in the past. Uh, let's look forward, uh, receiving the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ, because yes, we know you have not loved as you should have loved. But Jesus has loved you perfectly. And so discipleship connects grace to our responsibility to obey. Okay, so what does that look like? Let's look at verses 7 through 9 for a few minutes. First, you shall teach them diligently. There's a, that diligently communicates you know, this idea of earnestly, consistently, with Regularity. That seems to be the issue is here. Uh, not a, well, I told my kids about Jesus once, so we're good. <laughs> but to be regularly communicating to them about Christ, the Savior of sinners, who brings you into this family by grace, and now gives you a new way to live. All of that is to be communicated regularly, consistently. One of the books that just came out providentially uh, right before I, or right when I started this series is a book by uh, Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin, and it's called Family Discipleship, and it gets into some of this stuff, okay? And um, all of the families that have children who are still in the home are getting a book from us, okay? Some of the officers have already gotten there, so I, I lightened my load at our meeting on Monday. Uh, so there's some copies up here for those families that have kids. And um, one of the things that the authors talk about in that is about time. That's the subtitle. Uh, Leading Your Home Through Time, Moments, and Milestones is the subtitle of this book because that's how they, 
they have a framework of time that they utilize. And so they're talking about, when it comes to time, it's about regular times, daily times, as well as weekly times, as well as monthly times when you are speaking with your children uh, in a, an intentional way okay, about Christ. And so, you know, in our family, our kids have done BSF uh, since they were, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper, and uh, there's homework uh, as you get up in BSF, and that's part of what has structured our time with our kids, uh, usually after dinner, uh, until they're ready to do it on their own, we would work on them with their BSF, and Amy would usually give it to me, and I don't know why she did this, um, uh, because oftentimes my heart was not in the right place. I was thinking more about I want to move on to what I want to do as opposed to doing what I ought to do, fulfilling my responsibilities to my kids. And so I wasn't always as patient with my children as I needed to be in this process. I probably exasperated them. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. But it's also daily experiences of, of praying before meals and praying before bed and weekly and monthly experiences as well. Let's get to Ephesians 6, which gets into this as well. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up or nourish them is another way to translate that in the dis discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so, nurture requires both instruction as well as discipline. Okay? Truth and love. Joined together, just as we've been talking about before. Now, if you have too much instruction and not enough discipline, you're probably going to exasperate your children. Okay, that provoking them to anger thing. And the same thing, if you have too much discipline and not enough instruction, you're also going to exasperate your children. Because they'll feel like they're always being judged and not also being loved. Each kid has a different balance, so to speak. But I want to show you, not we're talking about children, but how we can exasperate them when, when our instruction doesn't line up with actions. I didn't tell Amy I was going to do this. Sorry, Amy. <laughs> there is a pharmacy in town. And you know, Amy had a drug that was recalled. And so Amy, like... Uh, a diligent, the diligent woman that she is, the Proverbs 31 kind of woman that she is, she went online and she found out what she had to do and she tried to do exactly that. And she went there to that pharmacy and they didn't let her do, or they didn't do what the, what the internet said they would do. And so she ends up making like four trips and uh, it's increasingly frustrating exasperating to my wife precisely because their words and their actions weren't matching up. When our words and our actions don't match up, our children get exasperated, and it's not their fault. It's ours. So Moses talks to them, and he says, 
Um, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Uh, discipline, though, let, let's talk about that for a second in the sense of, um, as we heard from Hebrews 12, the goal of discipline is a harvest of righteousness. The goal of discipline is not simply to get those kids to behave. You're trying to build character in children. And sometimes we discipline for the wrong reasons. Because we're sinners. Too often my discipline has been about the inconvenience that my children have placed upon me. It's less so now. I'm, I'm hoping I'm maturing. Okay? But I haven't always been the dad I want to be. And none of us is. None of us is the mom that we want to be. And it's okay to own that. And it's okay to communicate that to your kids. Because part of what your kids need to see is you repenting. Not just you calling them to repent. Now, of course, as, as the author of Hebrews says, uh, parents do this as best they know how. And, 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 you know, you're trying. And that's a good thing. But when you realize you're wrong, own it. So, now back to what Moses said. When you sit in your house or when you walk on the way, <laughs> it's interesting, he's talking about do this thing whether you're home or whether you're somewhere else. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're walking to town, that's a great time to instruct your children. Now remember, uh, they didn't have personal devices to listen to music or uh, anything else. Uh, there was no radio in the car or all the things that sort of distract us. Uh, you basically had each other, and uh, so what are you going to talk about during that time? And Moses is saying, talk about the Lord. Talk about the things that he's done for you. Whether you're home over dinner, or whether you're walking into store on an errand, uh, walking into town on an errand, speak about these things. Wherever life happens to take you, that is a time to talk about faith and life. And so that gets to that idea of moments that Matt Chandler speaks of. Okay, uh, there are moments that pop up where we're able to speak to our children about circumstances that they're going in, they're experiencing. They're perhaps having a conflict with their sibling or a friend. Uh, they may have broken up with a, a romantic relationship. They may be having trouble at work. This doesn't end when they leave the house, by the way. <laughs> Parenting in this sense continues through those moments. And it is then that you bring them back to the idea of who God is and what he has done and how he is there for them. There's a whole book of this. It's called the book of Proverbs. And it says, you know, this idea of, Hear, my son, your father's instructions. Forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And so the book of Proverbs is intended for young people to learn godly wisdom about things like money, relationships, including marriage, but not exclusively marriage, work, anger, 
lust. All of these things and more are in the book of Proverbs precisely so children learn how to deal with them from a godly perspective, from the perspective of the fear of the Lord, which produces wisdom. And so in those moments of failure or those moments of success, in those moments of relationship problems, of illness or injury, I'll bring them back to God. And this, in a sense, is what is you're getting at in that relational wisdom 360, that God, others, self idea. Proverbs is filled with that relational wisdom. Uh, you know, engage with God. What does God say about this whole thing that I find myself in? How am I affecting other people? And really, what's going on inside of me? What's my anger or fear or despair or anxiety about? And what does God offer me when I experience these things? That is intended to be a portion of family discipleship. When you lie down and when you rise, bedtimes, breakfast, they matter. Okay, when they're teens, the breakfast stops. I'll just tell you that right now. <laughs> their, their whole uh, pattern of time ch- shifts and changes. Uh, but, the, you know, they're the bookends of the day. And I reminded one of my children from when the times when they used to get up much earlier, where did they usually find their mother and father sitting at the table with the scriptures open, reading them? That is a pattern we want them to embrace in the future. Bind them as a sign. Write them on doorposts, gates. Think of that for a moment. Moses is recognizing their weakness, or God is recognizing their weakness, and Moses is too, and uh, saying that you need reminders because of your forgetfulness. And so here he provides some, and and, um, what we find are these things that are called phylacteries. And for those of you who haven't seen them, we've got a picture up there of phylacteries, and it looks really weird. Um, you can see, if you look right, there's a box on this guy's forehead. And inside that box is a portion of the scriptures. And he also has one, uh, you can see the wrappings, but there's a box uh, about his bicep. And the same thing, it has scriptures that are put in it. These were meant to be signs. It was not meant to be, you have fulfilled this uh, you know, you're walking with God because you have these on your body. Uh, the Pharisees were really good at making sure they had their phylacteries, but they weren't as good about making sure they were actually obeying the words that were in their phylacteries. It's not about having these things on your body. It's about having the word in your heart so that it motivates what you do. But we need reminders. And so it's not bad to have Scripture in the lobby of the church, which we're we're starting to do. It's not bad to have Scripture in your house on the walls to remind you of, of your responsibilities and of God's amazing grace to you. We need these things. Not just the outside, but to help us internalize His grace and responsibility. Now, and thinking of this, and thinking about that last category in family discipleship, they talk about milestones. 
And I always think of those mile markers that you see on the highway, and they used to be, um, I remember where I grew up, um, I can't remember if they were cement or they probably started as stone, but they were, they were stone and they were painted white and they'd have the, black, the number in black of the mile mark, what mile it was on that particular road. Life is made up of milestones. Right? It's not just you're born and then you die, but in between there's all kinds of milestones. There's graduations and birthdays and getting married perhaps and anniversaries and birth of children. Uh, job changes, all of these things, those are milestones in life. And discipleship continues in those milestones where you address them, you recognize them, you celebrate God's grace in the fulfillment of, of uh, you know, with graduation, or celebrate God's grace and, you know, your child got married, or they have a child. Celebrate, commemorate the grace of God in all of these events. Speak of his faithfulness. Remind them that um, these things happened to you too and how you saw God's grace at work when they happened for you. And so discipleship is intended to be woven into the realities of home life. Uh, Don't think like, that um, you have to have one-hour devotions with your kids every day, you know. You're going to exasperate your children if you do that. <laughs> but weave it. Yeah, I see you over there. Weave it into their lives, into family life, so that there are times when you are speaking, even if it's 10, 15 minutes, about these things. That adds up over the course of a life. So, we're not simply called to have obedient children. God says that he unites men and women in Malachi so that they will have godly seed. God's grace comes to our kids through means. And this means that we disciple them from the earliest days, instructing them about God, about grace, about obedience, as well as providing appropriate discipline so that they know what boundaries are. This doesn't happen by accident but try to develop a plan that encompasses time, moments, and milestones to move your kids closer to a lively faith as part of the people of God. And particularly for you families that are getting this book, utilize the the book, the, the discussion questions and the charts, and maybe meet with another couple who are going through the same thing or ones who have been through it before. Help one another in this process. Don't feel like you have to do it all by your lonesome. But remember that we are a community of faith, a community of the faithful. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that there is forgiveness for the ways in which we parents mess these things up, for our failures, for the the ways in which we had unrealistic expectations, Uh, for the ways in which we've allowed our sinful nature to take these things captive and twist them. and um, Help the parents here to remember their justification, that we're accepted not because we figured all these things out and did them perfectly, but because Jesus has perfectly obeyed for us. Help us to live in that. 
help us to be faithful and fulfilling our responsibility to the next generation, whether they're still in the house or whether they've already gone. To be speaking to them the, the, the truths from Scripture as well as the testimony of how you've changed us and worked in our difficulties. So they will know they're not alone. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.